Namaste, motherfuckers, and welcome to Tantric Conversation, episode number 29, Chuck Wren. <clears throat> Chuck Wren is a larger-than-life figure to me. I grew up with him uh, in Churchill, being one of the sort of ringleaders of all the good times that the dads were involved in when I was a kid. <clears throat> he was early, not not as it turns out in this interview, not a exactly a founder of High on the Hog, but um, involved very early on and then became extremely uh, important to it and, and became one of the major people, organizers and promoters and whatever the hell else it takes to put something like that on. He did it, including uh, designing the t-shirts, which are kind of classics um, to me. Um, I didn't I, for some reason, thought Chuck was originally from somewhere else because of the energy that he brought to uh, promoting and uh, just creating good times uh, in Richmond just seemed like external energy. So a few people kind of take it upon themselves to do this sort of thing and do it as well as Chuck has over the years that I just didn't even think it was homegrown. But he is. He's a native Richmonder. And uh, he talks about in this interview promoting the first psychedelic rock show at the now defunct Tantilla Ballroom, which used to be on Hamilton and Broad. And every time I mention it to somebody from the generation that remembers it, they say, oh yeah, you could bring your own booze in there. Apparently it's been around since the 30s or something. But anyway, uh, Chuck and I talk a lot about uh, High on the Hog and Churchill and all of the other things that he's done around Richmond over the years, and we also get into talking about someone betw- mutual between us, my uncle, Dennison MacDonald, who died when he was uh, 38 years old and had been a good friend of Chuck's and a big high on the hog person and a member of the uh, Churchill Porch Club, which is a loose affiliation of people who lived on the 2800 block of Franklin, across the street from Libby Hill Park. Um, maybe it's a little... It's not a general enough thing. Maybe um, not enough of you remember Dennison MacDonald when you're listening to this, but I will say he was, in addition to being my uncle, he was one of those people that everybody liked. He was friends with everybody. He was a really dynamic, magnetic personality. And uh, in Churchill, he, as you say in the interview or in the conversation, um, it ironically helped strengthen the community and fabric of that neighborhood when he died because so many people missed him they uh, ended up finding each other and and getting to be stronger friends and you know this brings me to my little bit of of a soapbox vis-a-vis the city of Richmond and their politicians in the city of Richmond who understandably desire to do big things, create things like stadiums and giant building projects, because that looks good on their resume. And it's one of those obvious things that gets people to vote for them, certain people anyway, the powerful people, maybe the people who lobby. I understand it. It gets them where they want to go. But it isn't really what benefits a community and I can say this with facts and experience because I grew up in Churchill which was a and when my parents bought a house and it was a blighted neighborhood and 
Uh, it was kind of chaotic. There's a lot of crime. The infrastructure was crumbling. The city didn't even pick up dead dogs out of the gutter. They didn't take very good care of it. And um, the people who were living in the neighborhood in the 70s and 80s started getting it together and taking care of the neighborhood. They started communicating with each other, all the neighbors, keeping an eye on things. You got a neighborhood watch going. Shelby Long, good friend of Chuck's, neighbor of Chuck's, spearheaded that. The Richmond police officers who patrolled Churchill became friends of the people in the neighborhood and uh, could be counted on to look out for things. Crime was vastly reduced up there. Quality of life was greatly improved. The city did have some part in it, I guess because they gave tax breaks and things to people for improving capital improvements in the city, but overall this was a grassroots thing done by the people who lived in the neighborhood. The Churchill that those of you who live in it now or go to visit it now and are so charmed by it, it was possible because individuals moved into that neighborhood when nobody wanted anything to do with it, got together with the people, and they didn't, it's not gentrification, nobody got displaced. It was a, it was a community that was built up based on basic neighborly values of looking out for each other and looking out for your common space. And that has been one of the big success stories of any urban neighborhood in the city of Richmond. And people like to talk shit on it. People up in the northern parts of Churchill like to talk shit on it. And the politicians like to say that it's you know out of proportion for the people on Liddy Hill Park to expect not to have that view of the river destroyed by high-rise condominiums. But if it weren't for the individuals in that neighborhood, that neighborhood would be, still be fucked up. So, uh, you know, that's that's what I got to say about that. And now that I'm done with that, let's get into Chuck Rat. This is a really informal style of thing. It's, um, you know, somewhat like doing radio, mm-hmm. but not because nobody's spending any money for us to be on the air. It's just yeah, uh, nobody's paying us. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> So we could just we just can ramble and we can talk about whatever. Um, so what's been going on? Oh, uh, getting ready for the folk festival that's coming up uh, other weekend. As you know, it's it's hard to miss if you're in Richmond, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a uh, started out as the National Folk Festival. Now it's the Richmond Folk Festival, and uh, it's in its what sixth year, I guess, something like that. Mm-hmm. So it's the Richmond Folks Festival, it's not the National anymore? <clears throat> no, the National, when the National comes to town, which they did, uh, they come into a town and they do the Folk Festival for three years in a row. And uh, they were here and did it for three years, but what they do is they set up an infrastructure and so sort of a school the town on how to do the Folk Festival. And then once they leave... You, you can continue, or not continue, but Richmond has continued and continued very successfully to put on the Richmond Folk Festival. Matter of fact, it's one of the best, some say the best, in the country right now. Wow. Yeah. And so the acts are from all over? <clears throat> all uh, over the world. All over the world. Mm-hmm. All over everywhere. Uh, it, it's through the national organization does the booking for it. And when you when you say folk festival, a lot of people think it's Peter Paul and Mary and, right. and Bob Dylan. It's not at all. It's folk music from all of all cultures from all over the world, and we have people from uh, Africa and uh, Thailand and China and 
all that. And it's all kinds of different stuff from Cajun music from Louisiana to Tibetan throat singing to wow. Japanese dancing, you know, everything from everywhere. So. Well, that's really cool to know. I, had, I didn't know that either, though it had just recently occurred to me that, you know, when you think about like Appalachia kind of folk music, sure. you know, that that's really music that originally probably came from Ireland or England, and it was the folk music there, and it came here when the people... Yeah, came here yeah, and then all, it became something different, but it's a continuum. Of, all know. rich in history and culture, mm-hmm. and it continues and evolves and all that. Yeah, sure. Appalachian music certainly would be, you know, a, a an American folk music. Yeah, but it's all kinds of things from Western swing to rockabilly to, you know, uh, polk. There's a great polka band there this mm-hmm. year. So it's all genres from all over the world. And you're a. I mean, you've been involved in rock and roll long enough, and. Uh, you remember Alan Freed? Oh right? yeah, you know. Yeah, sure. And he, he said uh, rock and roll is a river that has absorbed many streams. You know, it's got, well, that's very true. Yeah, and it makes you start to. I mean, what isn't folk music when you come right down to it? You know, I guess you're right. You know, it all it's all music <laughs> reflecting life, and and you know, sure, that's going to make it folk music. Yeah, you're right. I guess it, it's it's down to like the uh, intent behind it, like the music that's made strictly to be a product and be sold maybe could fall out of that category. well yeah <laughs> i mean the, the the commercial world of music which i i guess well there's a lot of commercial and world in all kinds of music i'm sure but i don't really think about that a lot i'm not involved nor interested yeah. in music to simply be commercial and make money and you know i i tend to lean more towards uh roots music and music mm-hmm. that evolves from that and uh you know, I, I can't say genuine yet, but, you know, me, people making music because they want to make music, not yeah. because they want to make money. Yeah. Kind of that, I mean, it's <clears throat> amateur in the sense that that word breaks down the love of the game, I guess, you know, that ama being this, the basis of that, that people are doing it because they love it. Doesn't mean they can't make money at it. No, but, no, you know. <laughs> and, and hopefully they will. Yeah. You know, I'd like to see everyone doing it, make money at it, but it doesn't always end up that way, as you know. But, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's always been my opinion that you you should, well, not you, that uh, one should do what they want to do because they love doing it. And if it makes money, that's great. Yeah. But if you want to have, say, a restaurant, you know, I like to see somebody open a restaurant that's interested in serving really good food. And if you serve really good food, hopefully you'll make money doing it. But when you open a restaurant to simply make money and instead of serving the good food yeah. if your emphasis is on profit not quality then you know that usually doesn't work out yeah we've both probably seen quite a bit of those failed experiments yeah <laughs> yeah 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 I yeah see. musically and, and in everything but you know uh you know life should be you know life should be just a reflection of of what you love doing it's the most yeah. sustainable that way you know and it's i, I think as I get older, I start to understand that better. Like I started doing this after I quit a job, and um, and then I was trying to get other people to sort of support me while I just did this podcast. Mm-hmm. But when I went to talk to him, like I went and talked to Manny, and I was watching him work his ass off while I was trying to hit him up for money. You know, he's <laughs> grilling. He's been working like eight days straight. Then I went down to talk to Jason Alley, and he's like down in his basement making pasta by hand, sweating. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I want you guys to give me some money so I can just record this a couple times a week, you know. <laughs> and I realized, you know, I got to go back to work myself and have a day job to support this thing, you know. Yeah. And it ends up balancing the two things out. 
Yeah, well, really well. money yeah. is funny. I mean, you know, life is certainly better when you have some. Yeah. You know, there's no question about that. And, uh, you know, you, you need it. Uh, but when it becomes the primary interest and your, your primary goal, I think it loses a lot of the creativity. I've always yeah. thought that the best art, whether it be music or any art form, really, that the best art is created by the hungry people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard to write a blues song about having AAA come to change a tire on your Mercedes Benz, you know. Yep. <laughs> exactly. And fewer people can relate to it on that when it, yeah, that's what I it's mean, about. I mean, well, to. like uh, Bob Dylan. I've always liked Bob Dylan through his whole career. But in my opinion, his best music was the early stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, when he was trying to trying to make it, you know, yeah. poor guy in Greenwich Village. And same with uh, not just Bob Dylan, but I mean, Jimmy Buffett's early records were mm-hmm. really good. And as you become more and more prosperous, I think you kind of lose that edge. Yeah. You know, and uh, not that you not that either one aren't good. And I still like Bob Dylan, but and Jimmy Buffett, for that matter. But uh, I think the more affluent you become and the more comfortable you become and the older you get, you just kind of lose that fire yeah. and desire, you know. Yeah, I think that's that seems to be that seems to be true. And the other thing that I've seen is that when you realize when you look at what you've done already and you see what's sold, you start just thinking about I just want to repeat those sales. It's not coming from like a creative yeah. place. It's mm-hmm. like okay, yeah. I need a song like Son of a Sailor or I need this, you know, right. and you're and you're just trying to fill an order almost with mm-hmm. the music you're making. Had such good money on the last one, I want to do one like it. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's a subtle thing that happens to a lot of people. Like it may not, you know, I mean, I'm sure there are people that get hired and they end up with record execs saying, we need you to basically duplicate this song but make it a little different. But I think there are a lot of people that just kind of gradually over time find themselves, you know, just wanting to please, you know. Yeah, I think <laughs> you know? so. I think so. Easy to get into. It's, it's hard to be... Uh, to continue a creativity Mm -hmm. you know anytime one uh, produces something whether it's a song or a painting or whatever it might be anytime you produce more than one then one's going to be compared to the other Mm -hmm. one's going to be say well that one's better than that one or so forth and so on so the larger volume of stuff you put out it's all going to get compared and which one was best and so forth and so on but you know the creative process is such that you you know, you want to keep creating, and if it takes you to a different avenue, it takes you to a different avenue. Yeah. You know, but I, but once again, hopefully, you know, if you you can make money doing it. And some people do, and some people don't, but, you know. Yeah. As for as long as I can remember, I've known you to be a promoter of music. I've done a lot other. of it over the years. I started out doing, I've always had a passion for music. I've always had a love for music and grew up in a family that we played music, not played instruments, but, well, played recorded music mm-hmm. and uh i've always liked it and when i was in high school uh i got i was a big r&b fan that being like james brown and all of that and the more you learn about one artist it opens the door to a million artists mm-hmm. you know you learn something about a james brown song and you say well gosh have you heard you know big joe turner and so you find out who that is and like anything you know you go through doors and the more you find out the more you learn and I've always liked that. And, of course, the Beatles came along while I was in high school. And everybody wanted to be a, in a rock and roll band. And, and uh, I played some – taught myself not very well to play, but to play a uh, guitar enough to have fun with it. 
and uh, we had bands in high school. And then as I got into college, still had a big interest in music, but I started putting on dances and uh, promoting bands and that sort of stuff when I was really young. We had the first psychedelic dance in the state of Virginia at Tantella Gardens Ballroom in the summer of 67. <clears throat> Where's that Tantella Gardens Ballroom? Well, it's down at Hamilton and Broad. It's not there anymore. It was torn down, but it was a very famous ballroom. Uh, they called it the South's Finest Ballroom, actually. And all the big-name bands through the 30s and 40s played there when they would come through. Count Basie, et cetera, et cetera. Glenn Miller and so forth and so mm-hmm. on. Very popular, wonderful, night, nice nightclub. And it fell into disrepair over years and uh, finally was torn down. But before it was, we put on, myself and a couple of my buddies put on a uh, psychedelic dance there, which would be, we had a lot of light shows similar to that of the Fillmore uh-huh. type thing and a, and a psychedelic type band and and uh, it was like a, a whole experience, you know, for, mm-hmm. like uh, fashioned after Bill Graham's Fillmore type stuff. And we did that in 67 and uh, actually sold the place out and lost money. It cost more <laughs> to produce the show than we could possibly make out of sellout. So that shows you we were, <laughs> we were kind of naive by the time we rented all the equipment for the light show and the band and did everything we needed to do. We had spent more money than we could make sold out. So it was a sold out show, but we still lost money. Who was the band? Who were the bands? Anybody? Uh, well, it was the, the uh, a group that, Opened up, it was a uh, sort of Jefferson Airplane, mm-hmm. Country Joe and the Fish, uh, Grateful Dead, San Francisco, yeah, the Bay Area style, kind of uh, uh-huh. Bay Area stuff. And uh, were we they had local rent- though, that, yeah, every, yeah, it was all local, all mm-hmm. local po- folks. And uh, we had rented a bunch of projectors and stuff, and had overhead projectors with fluid, and you know, did a psychedelic mm-hmm. light show type thing too. But uh, that was one of my first, and that was the biggest one that I had done at that point. And then I went to work in bars and started booking bands where I worked and playing in bands and, you know, as it went along. But I've always been involved in movie and uh, in, in bands, booking bands, and I've always uh, had live music around where I was. Mm-hmm. So then I, that evolved down through. I used to book for Chris Gibbs some down at Gatsby's 1302 and had the Good Humor Band there. Where was Once that? Where was Gath- was that That's down at Thirteenth and Cary. Oh uh, yeah, right there on the corner. Peking Restaurant is there now, but uh, it was right there That's on the right. corner, across from what used to be Sam Miller's restaurant. Right. Not where it is now, but it used to be on the corner. I think it's Thirteenth and Cary. It's a Segway uh, tour place then. Right. But I uh, <clears throat> did a lot of booking for bands down there. And over the years, just sort of got more and more interested to it. And I went to work up at the Stonewall Cafe and booked a bunch of bands up there. And then by the time I, I, they, I worked at Buddy's for 12 years on Robinson Street, we did not have live entertainment there. But I still had my finger in the pie and was mm-hmm. booking, putting on producing shows. And then we got the, uh, we opened Moondance, which was one of the ones that I was affiliated yeah. with. I was one of the one of the owners at Moondance. And uh, <clears throat> I was their talent buyer and promoter and all there. And we did live music every night of the week there. And we had that for roughly nine years. And then yeah. I went to Pose and was the booking agent and bartender at Pose for five years. But, yeah, we've, I'm very familiar with it and done a lot of it. Nothing on huge major scale, you know. I never put on Springsteen at Madison Square right. Garden or anything. But, uh, 
you know, in Richmond, I've done a bunch of booking, and I'm, I'm always music's always been a passion. For you me. know, it's, I always I somehow <clears> thought <throat> that. Did you grow up in Richmond? Or you I were, did. You did. I was I was born and raised in Richmond. I went to uh, Hermitage High School, and then I went down to Richard Bland College for a couple of semesters in Petersburg, and transferred back up to RPI, which is now VCU. Mm-hmm. But, I was born and raised. I did travel around the country a lot and been to other places, but Richmond's home, and I always ended up coming back here. Did you know Tom Robbins when he was at? I didn't, but I know he was around. He was a real regular guy and was a regular at the village and Mm a bunch of people down there in the old days. The village restaurant down on Harrison Street was the hangout for all the bohemian art crowd and he was always around down there with Lester Blackiston and Rick Davis and a bunch of the other more famous guys but they were a little bit older than me oh okay uh, they had me by a couple of years so uh, I was coming I was going to those places and all but I was behind them a couple of years mm-hmm. it's you know I, I assumed I think because you, you were so active in like you know, being such a uh, a promoter and an organizer and a, I guess a ringleader and all of this stuff that you weren't from here because it seems like so many people <laughs> that are from here don't you know they got they're in the same position you are a lot of times know a lot of people in bands bartending all of that but it doesn't occur to them to sort of turn it into a yeah I guess you know. uh, yeah I mean I, other people certainly put on shows I'm not as active now as I once was mm-hmm. with it uh, but. Uh, you know, shows still going on. There's clubs around that are fun. I've been up to the Camel a few times, and that's yeah. a bunch of fun. And, like and that uh, place. There's, yeah, and there's others I'm not that familiar with. Strange Matter, and you know, I, I get out when I can. I don't go out as much as I do because mm-hmm. of my family life and what I do now sure. for a living. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it still seems to be a viable music scene mm-hmm. here in town. You know, stuff comes along, and I like to go see. And, of course, then they got the folk festival we were talking about earlier. That's one of the biggest ones in the country. So, you know, there's a lot of music around Richmond. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I I just, you know, sort of my – you were different from all the others I knew when I was a kid, (laughs) you know. like, And I remember the first High on the Hog I went to, I think it was over – off of uh, Libby Terrace. You oh, know? yeah. Mm-hmm. High on the Hog. We did that for 30 years. And that actually stopped uh, this this coming weekend would have been High on the Hog 37. And we stopped that at the year 30 uh, just because it was a good stopping point And the guys had gotten weary of it over 30 yeah. years. And, and we had had two consecutively bad weekends for that and it rained and it depleted our treasury somewhat. Oh, yeah, yeah. We just couldn't didn't have the the desire nor the uh money mm-hmm. to keep going with it and it seemed like a good spot to call it. So we did at number thirty. But we did Hound Hog for thirty years. There's one year you tried to do it down on what Yeah, island? we had stopped it here in, in Hill Park on uh the twentieth annual, I think it was. Yeah, I'm sure it was. The twenty years we stopped on uh, Libby Park and then we tried down at Mayo Island at, at, right, that, Mayo. at that point. And uh, we tried Mayo Island. But it just seemed because of the nature of the thing and what How on the Hog was that for it to be what it was, it had to be at Libby Park in Churchill yeah. because it was a party for Churchill, by Churchill, mm-hmm. and benefited Churchill. And it was like a grassroots. It was never a commercial profit-driven uh thing it was right. a fall party that started off very grassroots in a backyard and uh developed to be quite a a thing but it was never profit motivated 
and it was it was we did we we did make some money and what monies were made when it was all over and done we would give to charities the churchill association mm-hmm. was the primary uh recipient of that but uh how on the hog was a very unique event in that it was not profit driven and it was for the neighborhood by the neighborhood mm-hmm. with neighborhood people doing it yeah you know but it did it started out way over on uh a backyard you, over on libby there? terrace mm-hmm. yeah. the very first one was put on by um john cochran and bob long i think randy smith was involved in it and uh, dave o'kelly and Larry Ham and Larry Ham, who was the cook and did the best barbecue ever for thirty years, uh, came up from Chapel Hill. He and his wife Debbie moved up on the Franklin Street block, mm-hmm. and down there they had had an annual barbecue that they did uh, called Hog Wild, uh-huh. and he wanted to do something like that. So one of the neighbors over on the terrace volunteered that backyard, and Larry cooked a, a pig, and uh, they had a keg of beer. And it was a very small event, but I was I was invited to the first one. And then when it came, they decided to do it again at the same location on Libby Terrace. Uh, I was in a band at the time. and our That's band, what I thought that was true. You you played, did you play at the first one? or the, Not at the first one. This, I only was a guest at the first one. But the second one, our band played. The second the and third. It was called the Faded Rose Band. And it was kind of a... Uh, hippie cowboy band fashioned after say burrito brothers and graham parsons and things like that i remember we, white shirts and maybe mm, bolo ties yeah. string ties and stuff i can't believe that was like i can't believe i remember that that's like 19 what 82 oh or gosh late, or early earlier. early yeah maybe maybe a little earlier yeah but along in that yeah mm-hmm. but yeah that was a uh kind of a hippie country band and we mm-hmm. did all kind everything from traditional stuff like hank williams and stuff like that to you know rock and roll stuff but uh it was a, like a country country group faded rose band had a great mm-hmm. girl singer her name was terry brennan and uh it was a real good little barroom band bar mm-hmm. band and we, we were playing in bars around town and stuff like that but we played at the second and the third one and then Later on, it, it, it let's see, it was two years over on Libby Terrace, and it moved into the back alley between our houses right back here. Yeah. And it was there for, oh, I want to say two, three, four, five, six, four years. Only four? Uh, like and at uh, number seven, <laughs> I believe it was, it moved to the park, to Libby Hill Park across the street. Came and out when of it was alley. back there, you guys would roll a flatbed truck into the alley. I remember this, and build a stage frame yeah around mm-hmm. it. we just pull a flatbed truck into the alley and build it up to a, build a stage put a temporary top on top of it uh had kegs and uh barbecue and it was basically three backyards that were adjoining and we did it in the alley mm-hmm. and uh just like we outgrew it on libby terrace and that we outgrew the alley too each year the crowds kept getting bigger and bigger we never advertised it, but it was word of mouth. And since, it, like we said, it was not a profit-driven thing, so there's right. no tickets to pay for or anything like that. It was Just free. You paid free. for the food and the beer. Or yeah. Like that. yeah. Well, we didn't in the old days. It ended oh, really? up in the earlier days that the food and beer were free. Wow. And we just paid for that too. But as by the time we were in the backyard, we couldn't supply enough food and drink and good music and stuff without generating some costs Mm -hmm. and we got to the point where we couldn't absorb the cost ourselves so we started charging a small amount for food and beer and then we started printing t-shirts and you know selling Mm -hmm. those and and just ways to generate money not to make a profit 
but to not lose money. How in the Hog was never never intended to make a lot of money, but we just didn't want to lose money. Yeah. And it got to the point where we generated enough treasury to go from year to year without costing us money. Mm-hmm. And uh, you said the T-shirts, you just sent a uh, a little pang of uh, nostalgia through me. Because like, when I was a kid, <laughs> we were just it's so psyched to get our High on the Hog T-shirts. Oh, yeah. We year. started doing them early, and we've I've got one draw them, each right? year. Yeah, I drew a lot of them. Yeah. I drew a lot of them, and then later on, I guess with the last oh eight or ten years, in the last years, we had other artists do do them, and that was kind of fun too. Ben Bundens did a bunch mm-hmm. of them, and uh, but by and large, I did them every year for most of the most of the history, and it was fun, and they were generally something that was topical at the time, mm-hmm. you know, like we would have Harry Porker uh-huh. and uh, you know Spider Pig, the Swine yeah, 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 yeah we'd have, Whatever was popular, you know, at the time, we'd do a spinoff on it and do some kind of parody or something. And uh, well, Beavis and Butthead and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And uh, we would do that. It would be kind of fun. But, yeah, How on the Hog was a wonderful, wonderful thing. It was very unusual. Uh, and people would always go, well, why do you do it? Well, we do it because it it's a good time. Yeah. You know, and it's it, it was a fall celebration put on by the people in the neighborhood for the neighborhood and it just got to the point where you know a lot of people came by by number 20 you know we were getting like 25,000 people up here I mean, for the it's afternoon crazy. I mean it was huge yeah way huge huge crowds uh, and lots of fun and at that point in time we were making some money but like I said, as it as it went on, the guys, the same guys, put it on for thirty years, mm-hmm. and they were getting weary of it and didn't want to do it much. You anymore. said one time that you you guys had kind of <laughs> hoped all of us kids would get together. Yeah, that was that over. was my my desire and wish is that that you know it would have uh, been kind of passed along, and uh, for whatever reason, it, it never caught fire. We couldn't afford houses up here. Yeah, yeah. maybe that's <laughs> what it was. <laughs> well, you didn't get here early enough, right? They're not twenty grand anymore, or whatever. <laughs> no. You know. No, they're not. in the old days they they were, but they weren't anymore. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, I would have liked to have seen it carry on it with the same thing and just mm-hmm. sort of pass the torch to the neighborhood stuff. But that didn't happen for whatever reason. It wasn't anybody's fault. It just didn't transpire. And so yeah. the guys got tired of doing it, and uh, finally, after thirty years, we just decided to to put it to rest. But, That's really awesome. I mean, I it's like when I was a kid. Churchill Porch Club, which was like you and and uh, Dave and and uh, all of those guys living right on the edge of yeah, the park, Bobby. Bobby and Shelby mm-hmm. and who else was that? Mostly uh, the people along Franklin Street there, Cochran and uh, and who uh, the Churchill Porch Club was like a very loose knit, mm-hmm. uh, wasn't even an organization. It was just right. something we called ourselves, and it was the guys and and gals that would get out on the porch and drink beer and at mm-hmm. sundown and carry on Dennison McDonald at the mm-hmm. time was a big part of all mm-hmm. that but the Churchill Porch Club really doesn't have a specific membership or right. any organization at all but my sense <laughs> of it was yeah it was like you know it was Dennison and you and all, and all of these <clears throat> folks who made Matt Zoller and, and yeah. various people kind people of ringing, who were in the neighborhood at the time yeah mm-hmm. ringing yeah. the park and uh and you guys had a a, a golf course out there frisbee yeah golf we played course. frisbee golf we played a lot of frisbee golf in that that time in Libby Hill Park and uh it was simply throwing frisbees at objects you would pick an object like you know a tree might be the first hole and you tee off from the 
porch and mm-hmm. everybody throws a frisbee to the tree and so forth. You know, at yeah, set, Staples set and Philip and Farley and I mm-hmm. would, would play for hours on end, and yet it looks like we got equally frustrated as a real golfer. Like uh. I don't know how many times <laughs> I th- flung a frisbee all the way down to Main Street because I yeah. got mad. But yeah, but you know. It's, that was a, like when I was a kid. It seemed like there was there were these sort of young kind of wild rock and roll, you know, people ringing the park down there. All of you guys, and then there was like my parents and and like you know the different parents, you know, like the Campbells and the Skinners, yeah, and, yeah and all absolutely. Of that. And like it was a separate thing, but gradually I felt like High on the Hog kind of brought like really brought the whole neighborhood together until my parents were out there That's- serving coleslaw and. No yeah. question about it, Kurt. No, I think Highland Hog did uh, bring the whole neighborhood together. Yeah, there's just like any neighborhood, there were different people. You know, we used to. Uh a lot of people would refer to our block of Franklin Street as Fraternity Row because we we, <laughs> we were we were younger than some folks mm-hmm. and uh, a little more spirited in other ways. And uh, there was a you know there were people that had been in Churchill for quite some time. They were a little older. And then as we moved up, it was a younger bunch of kids. And of course, we were acting up. You yeah, know, yeah. We, we were young and we liked to have a good time. How old were you guys music at that time? And like twenties, thirties? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah. I bought my house in nineteen seventy. Uh, 1978 mm-hmm. when I moved up here with my wife at the time, Myra, and uh, John and Dave were doing, most of the people were in the process of redoing those houses at that time, mm-hmm. but there were people that were here before I got here in 78, yeah. and I think your family certainly was. McDonald's. The McDonald's, and uh, Bobby Long was mm-hmm. already there, and Dave mm-hmm. and John already had bought their houses mm-hmm. and had them gutted and were rebuilding them when I bought mine but it was a bunch of uh you know crazy younger crowd that was a little bit more uh active in some ways mm-hmm, than mm-hmm. than the older more established socially <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah we took to uh having big times and uh we one one afternoon when it of course turned into a party so we, we burned last strips all day long and got oysters and beer. And next thing I know, there's music blasting and, you know, that yard's full of people. And, you know, people could smell the oysters on the fire and hear the music. And that automatically meant just go over there, you know, yeah, yeah. and uh, things like that. It, it was always a party just waiting to happen. You know, a party mm-hmm. would just break out without any notice at all. And uh, our block was kind of spirited and crazy like mm-hmm. that. But, yeah, but one thing I on the Hog did do is bring the whole neighborhood together, all yeah. factions and people and whatnot. You know, it seemed to be that everybody would volunteer and everybody had a great time. And, uh, you know, it was truly a wonderful uh, neighborhood party for the neighborhood mm-hmm. by the neighborhood. Yeah, yeah something <clears throat> that I think about uh, when, you know, when they talk about the things that they want to do down along the river, like build these high-rise condos mm-hmm. and stuff like that, um, and, and they're thinking the people who are behind such a big project is that it takes you know it's going to take some big civic project, some big city council thing, whatever like that to improve you know economics or, or whatever around here. And what I experienced in this neighborhood is it was all of these people who lived in this neighborhood getting together. Uh, doing like the neighborhood watch and doing high on the hogs and, and like just really building a sense of community, becoming friends with the police officers that were 
oh, over sure. here that this is what really improved this neighborhood. That it was no, there was no political action on the part oh, of any. Oh no, no, the, 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 this neighborhood was improved because of the neighborhood. Yeah, you know that was it. I mean, yeah, this this, this is an extremely unique neighborhood that you and I have had the pleasure of being in. Mm-hmm. I've never seen anything like it. Most people live somewhere they don't know the next door neighbor's name. Right. You know, I mean, you rarely talk to anybody. You do anything here and. and in our neighborhood, as you know, you know everybody on your block on a first-name mm-hmm. basis and talk to them. You know what kind of car they drive. If something seems out of whack, you know it right away. Mm-hmm. They can always call on you for anything. You can call on them for anything. This is a very unique neighborhood up yeah. here. Yeah, And know? it's not like some people try to <clears throat> characterize it along lines of class or race or any of that kind of stuff. Everybody was a neighbor. Yeah. Neighbors oh, together. yeah. And it wasn't just like... White folks looking out for white folks up here. It was like that Miss Johnson who lived across the street, like caught somebody breaking in our house. I mean, it was a sure, you know. Yeah, you're exactly right. I I think it just transcended all those kind of barriers. Mm-hmm. And Churchill is just a very and very diverse. To the day, it's still a very diverse neighborhood. Now, you know, it's come up quite a bit. The houses are worth more. They're fixed up now. It's a lot more single family people living here than it is rental property, mm-hmm. things like that. But I mean, the neighborhood certainly has changed and changed for the better. Yeah, over the last oh thirty years, thirty five years, uh, it was right rough in the old days up here. But the neighborhood had fallen into awful uh, disrepair through the mm-hmm. years, and a lot of the more all the white folks moved to the West End and it became a lot of rental property and yeah. so forth and so on. Slumlords and stuff. Yeah, slumlords, yeah, a lot of slumlord properties and houses that had been made into duplexes or just flop house stuff. When mm-hmm. I bought my house, uh, gosh, I bet I took 15 mattresses out of the place to the dump. It's just, you know, people just would get a place and put as many people as you could get in yeah. there and mm-hmm. things like that. But, uh, no, it's certainly the neighborhood is much better now than it's ever been. But And it was right tough in the old days. It wasn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't real comfortable. That was crime and drug use and, and uh, all that. Lip joints all around here, too. Like yeah, a lot of bootleg joints, the- people selling liquor and and you'd find syringes over in the park, you know, when you mm-hmm. go over there in the morning and stuff. I mean, it wasn't, a, it wasn't, a, but it had a tremendous potential. It's a beautiful neighborhood, and everybody that made made the, the that bought here that that made the deal with Churchill, uh, you know, has lived to, re- to re- reap the rewards mm-hmm. from it. But mm-hmm. yeah, no, the neighborhood's very diverse. Still is very diverse. Uh, all kinds of incomes, racial. Mm-hmm. Uh, lines it, it transcends all that mm-hmm. it's a very diverse wonderful neighborhood yeah it, it seems <clears throat> uh, I, and i don't know you know I, I was gone for four years but it still it still seems like there's the people still try to talk about gentrification or something and that has really never been a thing up here it's not gentrification in the no, sense of i don't think know. so it's just people having an interest in it they can see exactly. it's a nice neighborhood they mm-hmm. have an interest in it they buy a house and fix it up but I mean, it's, it's it's giving a shit versus not giving a shit. That's about the way your house. I kind of <laughs> see it. You know, yeah. yeah. I mean, people that live in Churchill have a lot of pride in the area and the community. Everybody's very involved. Mm-hmm. There's a great civic association here that a lot of people are involved in. There's a crime watch that Shelby Long does that you know just ties it all together. I mean, yeah. it's yeah. I mean, I think people take a lot of pride in the neighborhood, and and uh, I know I'm glad to be from Churchill, and yeah. I, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. No. If I was going to live somewhere else. It wouldn't be Richmond. I mean, you know, this is the best place that I can find. Mm-hmm. You know, I love being in Churchill. Yeah, me too. It's been really great to spend the last two weeks up here 
yeah. while sitting for my parents. Yeah. Well, it's a nice place. There's a couple other. Well, first I want to ask you, like, what were your what were highlights of the history of High on the Hog as far as shows that you can remember? I remember Memphis Rockabilly used to be one of the yeah we had, and, in the early day earlier days that being High on the Hog. Let's see, probably three, four, five, six that range. Uh, there was a band from Boston, and Memphis Rockabilly Band was the name, and uh, they were a particularly wonderful, authentic. 50s rockabilly style band mm-hmm. and really good and uh were written up in a number of magazines rolling stone and i think uh, time magazine did an article on them and whatnot but because it's out of a cult music they were never a big deal band mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but they were a big deal band with the rockabilly group and, yeah and they used to love coming down here i did a lot of work with them and booking them in clubs and stuff and they would also come do high on the hog for us and uh they were really a highlight in the early days of it and then there was a band out of Pittsburgh that came along that we really liked called Billy Price and the Keystone Rhythm oh, Band. Yeah. And uh, they were a big, high-powered band out of Pittsburgh, but it featured a uh, Richmond guy, Glenn Pavone, mm-hmm. who was a guitar player in that band. And Glenn and I had been in a band previous to him joining the Keystone Rhythm Band. And we had played at High on the Hog as well. So Billy Price and his band started doing High on the Hog, and they did it for a number of years for us. And that was wonderful stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, let's see. what. Oh, well, one, one highlight for me was at Hound the Hog 11. We had NRBQ. Oh, yeah. And that's one of my favorite bands forever. New Rhythm and Blues Quartet, yeah, right? Yeah, that was a, a dream of mine to, to see that happen. And that became a reality on Hound the Hog 11. And uh, we've had all kinds of stuff. We've had uh, once in the back alley when it was behind our house, a couple of the guys from the Springsteen band played up, showed up and played with uh, their pal's Good Humor Band. Gary Talent, the bass player for the E Street Band, was playing at High on the Hog with the Good Humor Boys. And and, uh, it was fun. I mean, but these were all early days, you know, Mm -hmm. and you never knew what was going to happen. Good Humor Band, which is... One of the best bar bands I've ever heard, based in Richmond, good bunch of guys, my friends. They played High on the Hog a lot. But between, you know, like Memphis Rockabilly Band, Billy Price and the Keystone Rhythm Band, Good Humor Band, there's certainly, you know, three of the of the, the big ones. And then we had Marsha Ball for the 25th High on the Hog, which was really the big feather in the cap, mm-hmm. I think. Well, she's really something. And, uh, you know, over the years we've had uh, nobody huge. We've never had Buffett or Springsteen, but, right. you know, we've had some really good quality, you know, entertainment at mm-hmm. Hound Hog. And it ranged from everything from local stuff to national stuff. And in the early days, while they were still with us and around, we had the Silver Stars Gospel I was going to ask you about that. Where are those guys from? <clears throat> were they local? They were Richmond guys, and they were on uh, WRVA radio every Sunday morning for over 30 years. Oh, wow. With all in A-Row and Tim- mm-hmm. Timberlake and that bunch down there. And uh, they grew elderly and no longer could perform, and then some of them passed away. But they were a very traditional gospel quartet, uh, very southern-style gospel Mm -hmm. uh, quartet. And they played every year that we could get them and played most of the early years. That was always a highlight. And we've had all kinds of wonderful music, ranging from bluegrass to rhythm and blues, rockabilly, um, most of it's American roots music, mm-hmm. you know, and we, whoever around the neighborhood played, our neighbor, Tim Oaksman played a couple of years. Oh yeah. And, and uh, we had he a He used little, to play the washtub 
bass or is yeah, that? Yeah, we, we had a little all of some of that stuff. Is yeah, that we, right? We, well, we had a little jug band that yeah. we would play on the front porch called the Franklin Street Vegetables. Yeah, and we played it high <laughs> on the hog one year, which is funny. And we we uh, the who Franklin, played the washtub bass with the peanut butter on his fingers? That, that would have been John Cochran. John Cochran, that's yeah, right. It was a it was a bass player. Bobby Long was a washboard player. I played guitar and sang. And Larry Ham, our cook at High on the Hog, played kazoo. And we would we would just do that for fun on the porch. But one year we actually played at High on the Hog for the just for the hell of it. And it was great fun. I'm we good. had shirts that said uh, uh, lettuce, turnip, and pea. And <laughs> as the vegetables, of course. And we'd say, We'll be right back. We're gonna take a break if you'll just let us and we'd all stand in line and stick the whole show the shirts and say, Let us turn up and pee, we'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of humor, but uh, fun, fun stuff. Yeah, I'm getting really nostalgic. Sort of ongoing wake that seemed to be going on. Oh God, yeah. Denison's pa- Denison's passing impacted the community greatly. Uh, he was quite a figure up here, and uh, of course, in those days, he was very. He it was young, and nobody expected things like that. Thirty six. Yeah, something, something like that. Like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was also a big, strong guy. Yeah. And le- the least guy in the world you'd ever expect to have anything happen. And as you know, he had an accident at work, and it caused a aneurysm yeah, to, he his, broke his, to his heart. It broke his hip, and mm-hmm. it caused aneurysm to his heart, unfortunately. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that impacted the community greatly. And, you know, we still think and talk about Denison. Mm-hmm. And I've got some... Uh, well, you talk about a walk down memory lane. One day I'll have to get out my Holland the Hog pictures and stuff and show you. I would but love to see those. We've got all that stuff from the backyard, and I've got boxes and boxes of poorly organized, but nonetheless I have them pictures from those days. But, uh, yeah, Dennison was a, a wonderful guy and a big part of the community, and when he passed, it took a long time to mm-hmm. deal with that. I remember you guys playing Amazing Grace as the washtub. Yeah, we did a lot. We did a lot of that kind of stuff, and the little Joe Skiffle uh, band was just a loose knit bunch of guys, and anybody could play that wanted to. And we just would get on the porch and drink beer. And play. I don't want to leave the Denison's McDonald subject though. He was my uncle and everything like that, because he was my bridge to you guys, mm-hmm. you know. And he was sort of the bridge, I think, to well with, with Farley and, I mean, and Staples, and you know the whole family and all that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And a bridge, I think, you know, because he was sort of like a, a guy that had been here a while and was like, you know, friends with some of the families that had been here a while. But he was also friends with you guys. And even yeah. at the young, tender young age I was when he died, which was fourteen, I thought about it a lot over the years after that. And if there could be any sense made out of somebody being as you know strong a personality as he was, and is is liked by everybody and all of that, and just be taken so subtly, suddenly, is that all of the people that were left behind by him became friends that's well that's closer, true that, that's true yeah Denison had had that magic of bridging all that mm-hmm. you know he could be just as happy having a beer with the guy under the bridge down the street as he could be at you know some high society churchill function mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and man he trafficked well with everybody knew mm-hmm. everybody and everybody knew Denison, and everybody liked and respected the man he was really something but he could. He trafficked in all of that. He wasn't of one particular bunch. Mm-hmm. And he could do it all. I mean, you know, he bridged that, that gap of between people, yeah. Yeah. And it's it's almost like, you know, when he, when he left, it left this sort of gravitational vortex that all of these people sort of, 
mm-hmm. you know, came together. Yeah, we and, all shared. You know. Well, yeah, as many people as he knew in all these different walks of life, we all shared the loss of Dennison McDonald. Yeah. So, you know, the guy that does the yard work that comes by on the bicycle knew Dennison. The people that are president of the Churchill Association knew Dennison. And they mm-hmm. all have that in common. So mm-hmm. you're right. Yeah. You know, that was sort of the glue that brought a lot of that together. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember, I don't, do you remember the uh, the year that he died? He was uh, scheduled or had signed up to run the Richmond Newspapers Marathon. And he ran it a couple of years. He probably, yeah, I'm sure he was signed up to run it. And uh, yeah, I oh. do remember that because we used to go down and watch him and take signs to support him. And we had done that a couple of years, I guess. And all of these people that, knew him ran his number yes they did you remember that Mm -hmm. yes i do to honor him they ran his number in the marathon that year but he would go down and do it every year he wasn't the fastest and (laughs) (laughs) but he did it every year and it was always fun because those of us that didn't run the marathon would make signs and hold them up for him and you know go down there and all that i think i might even still have a couple of those signs somewhere over at the house but it was fun it it's fun. taken on mythical proportions for me, you know, being like the, when I think about it, it's all the people, you know, he, I remember a story about him running and, and like getting a really bad cramp in his leg and, uh, and Bobby and Shelby like feeding him cold apples and massaging his, uh, his calves for him and him getting back. I mean, it was a real, he, he was like sort of the hero out there on the, in the marathon for representing sort of all of us. Oh yeah. All, yeah. He's supporting really- him. He represented yeah. a bunch, but I mean, yeah, he was our guy, yeah. you know, and the neighborhood would support him and, and come out for it and all. But yeah, he did that. He he was a big, strong fellow, and and uh, he would run the marathon. I went to see him. I don't know how many years, a uh, few years that he did it, and then after his passing, a bunch of people I think did run his number on, on mm-hmm. for that year. But he was he was very well known around town, not just Churchill, but yeah. around town. He was he was a like a West End kid, grew up around U of R, and uh, went to. I don't know where TJ or something like that. I'm not right? sure. Yeah. Don't know. Um, you know, some other things I remember you doing the three five three rock yeah. uh, rock mm-hmm. line things. And that was like people could call up and find out what was going on and Well, that was before before internet, before mm-hmm. everybody had a computer back in the telephone days. Yeah. And uh yeah, my, my good friend Barry Gottlieb, better known as Mad Dog, oh, ran yeah. Mad Dog Productions. Earl the Dead Cat and was the manager for Single Bullet Theory and Susie Saxon and the Anglos in the old days and all that. He's a wonderful fellow. Well, he and I both had been talking. We had this idea about what about a service that you could call and uh, it would tell you who's playing at what bars around town. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was going to do one and he said he was going to do one. And finally, one night we just said, well, why don't we do it together? And so we did. He had an office over in Scott's Edition, and we bought two commercial-grade uh, re- telephone recording machines, I guess, like an answering machine, mm-hmm. something like that. But you could record something on it, and it would play it back when it was called. We bought a couple of those, and we went out and talked to everybody at the bars and everybody. We called it 353 Rock, Richmond's Rock and Roll Hotline. And <clears throat> that was the number, of course, that you called. Mm-hmm. Call 353 Rock on your phone. And uh, you would get our recorded message. And we'd go, we went into all the bars that had live music and just said, you know, you give us the calendar. We'll put it on our rock line. People will call it, and they'll tell you who's at your club, you know. And mm-hmm. we charged a minimal amount. I mean, it was, it was near nothing. I think it was like $20 a month or something. Oh, yeah. You know, it was almost nothing to mm-hmm. be on it. So <clears throat> just about all the bands and all the 
places in town were on it. Bands could also get on it if they if the place they were playing didn't have wasn't on there. They could buy a spot. And mm-hmm. What we did is we get together and we changed it Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and it overlapped three days in advance. I think something like that. But when you call the number, it would say, you know, thanks for calling the Richmond Rock Line, and here's what's happening around town, mm-hmm. and it would say is. Who's so-and-so's playing at Strange Matter, so-and-so's at yeah. Camel. Then on Thursday, who's playing what and where. But <clears throat> uh, we both had corny personalities. So <laughs> we would not only just provide the information, but it usually we'd play music behind it and tell jokes and crack up with each mm-hmm. other. And it was just kind of a silly thing. And it So was, it was almost like what I'm doing here, except it was recorded on... Uh, telephone answering machine yeah because it was uh-huh. a little bit of a show yeah because like well there was no internet so yeah. i mean it wasn't anything you couldn't go to a site and see who's playing so you call this number and it gives you the information of who's playing in, in one phone call you hear everybody that's playing for the next three days in all mm-hmm. the bars right which right. Was, which was pretty cool but then you also had to put up with our nonsense and jokes and, and <laughs> <laughs> there was but, no fast forward but, but it was it's pretty funny no you couldn't fast forward through it. but uh it was funny we changed it three times a week we did that for 14 years but then once the internet and stuff started coming along there was no more need for that because you could just go to a site and, it's and interesting see. that there's a a continuing thread like you guys doing that, and then you know, punchline before the internet, and sort of in between, and, and I think probably overlapping with three five three rock was really about the listings. And my friend Jayon did it, the same kind of legwork that you guys would do to make yeah. sure that mm-hmm. the calendar and punchline was as exhaustive of what was going on, whether it was karaoke or you know a blues band or yeah, or whatever, whatever you had. All over. Yeah, but once you get the structure mm-hmm. set up, and you know the the bar is committed to. Yeah, doing it with you and whatnot. You just call or they call you and give you the yeah. list. And but you know, in those days, it wasn't it wasn't much emailing. And I mean, we didn't right. have the technology we do today. So it was pretty much okay. I'll take it down with the pad and pencil. Or, well, that was or, probably fun too. Because yeah, you could it was a lot of get fun. a little uh, you know drink while you're on the road. Too, yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. And we never wanted to miss Make that the opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, now John Morgan, I don't know if you know him, he has a thing called, uh, he used to be a punchline guy. He's got a thing called One Way Richmond, which basically does what you did on the uh, phone. Oh, wow. He does it as a website. So mm-hmm. you go on there, and he's got all the stuff coming up, and he's got show picks. It's One Way Richmond? One Way Richmond dot com. Oh, I'll, yeah. to, I'll, I'll go look at a it. A Better Life Than Jumping Off the Lee Bridge is his subtitle, <laughs> you know. So don't get depressed. There's something going on, you know. <laughs> Another one I want to ask you about, and this this seems like a particularly like kind of Wild West time periods you were djing and bartending at the domino's oh yeah man good lord the chaos Uh, cafe at uh, night that was just absolutely nuts yeah um the way all that got started i was working up at buddy's restaurant and uh as a bartender Mm -hmm. up there and uh i've always loved doing music and playing music now i do i would do at at the time i had a dj set up and i would do parties and things for people Mm -hmm. you know but it wasn't what I was doing professionally as a bartender. Right. But uh, George Meyer had a restaurant down on uh, 17th Street, and it was called Domino's Doghouse. And Domino, it was named Domino's after his Dalmatian dog. <laughs> well, it was, he had a Dalmatian named Domino, so he named it Domino's Doghouse and served hot dogs, and uh, among other <laughs> things. And it was a little lunch counter that he had down there. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was over where Havana 59 is now when it first started up. Oh, yeah? When, in in the, the very early days, yeah. And I uh, 
had my DJ system, and Domino and I were friends, and a Thursday night was my night off. And I said, well, Domino, what if we, I'll bring my DJ system down here and set it up in the restaurant, and uh, I'll come down and DJ. We'll stay open at night, and, uh, you know, we'll get a bartender in. To, I mean, he didn't have a lot of liquor. It wasn't, it wasn't a big bar, big drinking place. That was yeah. a daytime lunch counter. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, try to sell some hot dogs and some beer, and I'll play music. Well, the thing took off like a rocket. Mm-hmm. And uh, before you know it, after a couple of weeks, the place was packed. And then he had to change location. So he moved from where Havana 59 is across the street to the location, which is now – it's the uh, Thai restaurant. It was right the, next to right, the alley, right? Right mm-hmm. on the alley. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was rock bottom in between. Yeah, it, yeah. it was rock bottom, and Moondance was next to it. Yeah, at, yeah. At, 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 It used to be DeFazio's, and mm-hmm. on through history it goes. But uh, anyway, he opened up across the street, and when he opened up over there, that was a bigger spot, mm-hmm. and we continued doing it. And I was doing it on Thursday night, just that night because it was my night off, and the place was jammed. Packed. Dancing on the bar. It was. We never like. advertised anywhere. We never did anything. You know, it was like we just. It was. If you didn't know about it, and that's part of the of the draw. I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, what happened in the place? People would start. We supposed to have sixty people in there, and we'd put about one hundred and fifty people in there. You know? <laughs> and so people would get so crowded in there, they'd stand up on the the, the booth seats, and then they started standing up on the tables of the booths in there. And I mean, it might be. Let's see. You so say you got three people on each booth seat, and then you got four people standing on. You know, you got ten people in a booth standing up, and the booths were all breaking. Yeah, because the you know, so. we weren't meant to have four people dancing on top right, of them, right. and we let it go on. You know, and so after they're breaking, we try, we're fixing them. Have to fix them every day that mm-hmm. we that we're doing it. So uh, Domino and I went to Tuck Welding down there and said, told them the problem we're having, and we had some steel. Uh, supports made and put in so that people could stand up yeah, on the table. Yeah. So, and that was part of the uh, part of the appeal of it, uh, the draw. I guess you could table mm-hmm. dance at yeah, Domino's yeah. Dog. I was dancing on the table, uh-huh. and so it, then I started getting Rocco Yates, my buddy. He was a bar uh, the DJ at Hababa's for a long time. Mm-hmm. He came down and started doing Friday night. And then we had Michael Garrett from Single Bullet Theory doing Saturday night. Ended up after a while where we got Michael Woodall involved from the old Throttle magazine. And it ended up being a cast of characters down there. So during the day, it was a lunchtime place where people ate lunch. And at nighttime, uh, we opened at 9, but it usually was about 11 before people started rolling Mm -hmm. in. But from 11 till 2... It was it it was blisteringly loud, mm-hmm. packed, smoky, and everybody in there was probably doing something against the law. <laughs> <laughs> How in the hell? Like this is a thing that I remember. Shaco Bottom, you could do shit like that down there, and nobody would give you any trouble. You can barely blink an eyelash without right. having the ABC board on you and. You yeah, know. that's all very different now. Back in the old days, it wasn't all the ABC stuff that it is now. And uh, the b- bottom and all that was not a, a focal point. Nobody it wasn't, under the, was it, uh, wasn't right. under the microscope. It was kind of like 
oh, it's just out of the way. And a lot of art kids used to rent warehouses down there mm -hmm. for art studios. Mm -hmm. And they would run a warehouse and say, put, I don't know, 10 artists in there for an art studio. Yeah. And the way they'd pay the rent is once a month they'd have a warehouse party yeah. and put a bunch of beer in there and a band, and you charge like five bucks at the door, mm -hmm. and that pays the rent of the warehouse. You know mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. And they were huge, great warehouse parties all the time and yeah. all that. And the bars that were down there were, you know, it was like, it wasn't, nobody really knew any, any of that was there. Yeah. You know, and uh, Richmond Graphics at the time over in Southside, that's where all the single bullet theory guys worked. Oh, okay. A screen printing place. Mm -hmm. And they would have big parties over there, you know, and the band would play. And that's where they would rehearse and all, too. Mm -hmm. And it was just a real neat kind of underground, if you didn't know, you didn't know kind right, of right. thing. And uh, all that went on. You could never do that stuff anymore like that. Got to pick some part of town like Brooklyn Park. Uh, Bolt, yeah, know. I mean, you could probably find it. You know, but I mean, even like the people up along the Art Walk place on Broad Street and all, look at the problems they're having. And, yeah. you know, that would have never even been known, those galleries and stuff. But now also the ABC people are a lot more aggressive and everybody's mm -hmm. just, you know, insurance and so right. forth and so on. But in the early days, yeah, I mean, it was pretty crazy. Yeah, when I was in college at, at VCU, I had a friend that uh, – I think he was renting the entire building that is now where the ODC is, <clears throat> and he would do the same thing. He'd have yeah. a, a party like once a month or something and pay his rent, and, mm -hmm. and the rest of the time he had a three-story building downtown that he could you know, kind of do whatever he wanted to. Yeah, Anybody's not only was it a lot of space, but it was cheap. Yeah. You know, they weren't rented to anybody. They were empty buildings, and mm -hmm. these people would come say, look, I'll give you, you know, $300 a month or something, and you get the whole building for that. Yeah. You know, and uh, yeah, I mean... Uh, but all that's long gone. We thought it was always going to be like that. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when you live in the moment, this mm -hmm. is great. It's always going to be like this. And yeah. it changes. Yeah. You know, it all changes. Do but, yeah, there were some pretty wild times. Back in those days, they were wild. And, and uh, Domino's Doghouse, you know, should have been shut down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can. But it was can. a whole bunch of fun. This, this, you know, Mac McCormick would, you know, just freak out thinking about, like, you can't do, you know, even a tenth of that kind of action. Over no, without, I you know. I like Mac. Mac's a real nice guy, mm -hmm. and he's having a terrible time down yeah. there now. And Shaco Bottom is another whole story. When mm -hmm. we opened Moondance in 1990, we had bought the building from Joe DeFazio, and the flood wall had just been built. Mm -hmm. And, uh, damn, if we do, it was right after a, fl a flood there. Right when we were opening, it was getting ready to be a flood. Bird in Hand had opened a couple years before that. Yeah. And it looked like that the bottom was bound for glory. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it looked like that was going to be Richmond's Georgetown mm -hmm. or Fells Point or Harbor Place or, you know, whatever. I mean, it just looked like the bottom was going to be Richmond's entertainment place. And mm -hmm. a lot of people went in and put great restaurants in. Awful Authors was there and yeah. the Island Castle Grill and, and Castle Thunder and uh, Brett Cassis and the guys over at the Flood Zone were doing uh -huh. a great job with concert stuff. And it just really looked like that area was going to take off. We opened Moondance and Chetty's Cow and Clam and the Main oh, yeah. Street Grill and, you know, Farmer's Market Inn with George Peck around the corner, did mm -hmm. the Blues Club. And it just was a, a real neat environment. You could go down there and park your car and go to 10 different bars, hear three or four different bands, and never have to drive uh, anywhere, just walk mm -hmm. around the block. And uh, for some reason, and I'll never know why, the city just doesn't want that to go on. And yeah. so they slowly but surely you know got rid of all of it mm -hmm. and uh, i don't understand why things happen that they do in the bottom seems like you'd want to embrace that 
keep it all in the area, keep it good, high quality, you know. But it, no, the bottom has it changed. It's a, a crazy freaking mystery. Like, I mean, what, what what would there be for them to be against down there? I mean, it makes right. sense over VCU. Uh, that they got had a problem with Gray Street because that might fuck with people coming to VCU or enrolling there. Like if their parents come down and see the yeah. Lex Theater yeah. over there and a bunch of biker bars, they might go, "That's ah, a nice school, but this isn't working for me." Yeah. Or you can see the West that all the residential people over there having a problem with that. But nobody lives down. I mean, they they do now. There's well, more but I mean, the, it's there, urban but, living stuff. It's not like it's you know out right. in some fancy neighborhood. You live in downtown. Uh, I don't know why they wouldn't embrace that. Seems like you'd want it all in an entertainment area. Right. You'd want the quality of it all to be good. You'd want it to be a safe environment for people to come to. God knows the tax dollars the city could benefit from having a good area like that. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, and I don't know why, uh, that area just has never been allowed to do it. Between ABC and city people, and you know, I just yeah. don't know why it's not em- more embraced. Seems like you would want it to be that. It way. really feels like. And this is in general in the city to me. It feels like the city is waiting for you to come into the city so they can take money from you and give you tickets. It's like it feels like a trap rather than an invitation. Yeah, you know, you know you're you're right. I mean, it 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 seems like to me if you had a bunch of flourishing businesses and it was comfortable to come to, more people would come, spend money downtown. It would be tax revenue mm-hmm. for the for the city. It seems like it would benefit all that. It's almost like they're afraid. To, to try anything, you mm-hmm. know. And what they've got down in Chaco Bottom now is just a big mess. It's empty places. And yeah. The businesses are all there. I'm sure there's some nice businesses down there that are all good. Matter of fact, I'm positive of it. But yeah. by and large, it's, you know, just all those have a nice day cafe kind of clubs. And mm-hmm. they're not, I mean, it's, it's just an awful element down mm-hmm. there. People won't go down there. It's not safe to go down. It's very intimidating to go down there. Yeah. And uh, it's a real shame Mm -hmm. because the people that are trying are suffering, like Mac, for example. You know, he's got a great place there, but he suffers. I mean, his people won't go to it. Even if it weren't for, and and, and it's a big element, like the kind of urban street, you know, sort of shenanigans that are going on down there. The guys are down there not even trying to go inside of any of the clubs. They're just down there hanging around, fucking up. But even that, I mean, like, I don't like going down there because, like, I it's going to be a hassle if I even try to take my car down there and park. It just feels like it, it, there's just you know this this concentration of police and no parking and just a, well, a whole bunch that. of hurdles to get over. All that. To, I mean, yeah. streets barricaded off. There's nowhere to park. You have to pay to park. It's like yeah. it, it's like you really have to want to go because it's not anything yeah. you're gonna do just to, to stop by mm-hmm. and you're right and oh it's terrible down there. and that's what ended up killing the moon dance was the moon dance was doing what the moon dance did mm-hmm. and the area changed around it mm-hmm. and all of our people said you know we'd love to come down there but man it's, it's too yeah. dangerous we, we can't you know what happened i think they, is when they closed down dmv drive because that was those people who like to cruise used to just do it over there they used to cruise mm-hmm. over behind uh the diamond. Well, it shit. was that, and, like, and, and a street scene like you're talking about developed in the bottom, and uh, it was uh, well, gosh, back in the day, a guy named Fraser Boyd wanted to open uh, a uh, topless place mm-hmm. down there, and uh, it was supposed to be an upscale gentleman's club. You had to have a coat and tie to come in, and they uh, used going with for the uh, expense account guys, and uh-huh. it was going to be a, a titty bar right right and uh everybody got all up at arms about it we can't have that coming into the bottom you know mm-hmm. and uh, this is in a day when it looked like it was going to go and that's mm-hmm. what attracted him to the area i'm sure 
And it went on and on, and it was fought by different people, associations, and so forth. Anyway, they managed to block him from doing it. So he said, well, okay, if we're not going to do the Titty Club, that's okay. I'll give you a rap hip-hop club. Mm. And that's what he did. He opened a rap hip-hop place. And uh, nothing against rap or Mm hip-hop. But it started bringing an element into the area that was not what the area was. Mm -hmm. And it brought more and more element in. And it ended up just being a big street scene Mm -hmm. with people hanging on the street. Mm -hmm. They they weren't there to go into the restaurant and eat or go to hear a band or to have fun or anything else. They were just there to... Mm-hmm. be intimidating and be on the street and be in proximity of whatever scene you know there were a hand, right. there were people going inside clubs and spending money in clubs and then there were the guys that couldn't and they just wanted to be around it and hang out yeah, on the street they were just hanging on the street mm-hmm. and then it became you know of course like that you have different social elements in there you have different racial elements in mm-hmm. there and they start to clash with each other mm-hmm. and so after a while then the violence ends of it starts coming out and then, you know, you're down there. Let's say you and, and, a, and a lady friend or whatever are walking down the street, and it's a bunch of guys standing there. They make some remark, and you turn around and say, hey, fellas, please don't. And they they, they go and jump on you and, yeah. you know, and all that sort of stuff. And it just got to be where it was very violent. Mm-hmm. Hell, I mean, it's no secret. It's in the newspaper. People get killed down there. Yeah, and, and part you of know. the problem is that nobody wants to talk about it without it sounding like it's a racist issue, and it's no, not a I, fucking racist issue. It's a it's a practical issue. There's bullshit going on down there, and the police aren't stopping it from going on. They're right. just penalizing the people who come down there who well, are behaving. That bullshit aren't, is bullshit, you know? regardless of what color it is. Yeah. You know, I always see things. I try to look at things as quality, not color. Yeah. You know, and I mean, God knows, was it Frank Zappa said? You know, I'm not black, but there's a lot of times I wish I wasn't white. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I mean, so I mean that that comes in all kinds of shapes and colors and stuff. But mm-hmm. you know, uh, bullshit's just bullshit, and it's bullshit, man. I mean, you it know? could be any kind of. I mean, it could the place could be. There's no reason why the city or anybody else should allow any. I don't care what 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 the element. What's the demographic of that element? A group of random sort of mobs of people shouldn't be setting the tone for how no. a part any part of town is, and, and why they can't control that is beyond me like nobody benefits from it it doesn't benefit the city to have that down there you know they're not making any money off of it there's no tax dollars you know it's costing them money they have to set up all the police barricades Mm -hmm. and the temporary police stuff down there and it goes on every weekend they shut the intersections down and cop cars just flashing lights and all that and and, uh you know there are clubs there that draw terrible elements Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm not saying that people in the club, if you, you're going, going in the club, but all that street scene, it's outside and all that. I mean, it's just, you know, just, it's I don't know why, would, I don't know why the city wouldn't embrace that area to make it be what it could be. There's got to be some weird, you know, I, I, I once thought that maybe they're, they don't want anybody to get too established down there because if they ever get the high speed rail and they ever get the things going that they want to get going, that they would want to start all over again down maybe there. that's like, it you know, i don't know you know they talk about wanting to put a ball diamond ball ballpark down there and they yeah. want they want chilies and tgi fridays right. and they want you know the gap and uh patagonia and they you know right i mean that's the kind of thing i think that they have in mind and mm-hmm. and uh you know there's no, no not much room for the small independent guy like me that wants to open up a restaurant and you know, have live music or whatever. I mean, I I think they want it to just be kind of clean and like what's happened around VCU. Yeah. Now we've got franchises in there, and there's nothing wrong with franchises, but 
Like what we what has happened to all the people in Churchill with what all these individuals did because they were building a community to live in did gave made one of the best neighborhoods in the city. So it'd be interesting if the politicians of the city and the people who set all this stuff in motion could see, hey, maybe we should just let just support an area to find its own thing like mm-hmm. Churchill did. Just let, you know, do our job, police the area and and do all the things that we need to support the infrastructure and then let capitalism happen down there. Yeah. Let businesses yeah, let, let do their do job. And, do. Sure. Yeah. Well, they're talking about, you know, Richmond has the oldest continual operating farmer's market in the entire United States of America on 17th Street. Yeah. And it's just pitiful. Yeah. And it's not George Bolas, the manager's fault. You know, he said he can only do what he's allowed to do. Right. You know, and that place is terrible. And and with all the popularity today of farmer's markets all over town, huge ones, big Mm -hmm. ones, everything booming. And the city can't get the oldest continual farmer's market to function. It's because they don't want it to function. You could do it if you wanted to. Yeah. You know, Forest Hill has a great farmer's market every Saturday morning where mm-hmm. thousands of people come to. Yeah, yeah. Vendors and, and people buying and selling. And it's just a very vibrant scene. There's no reason that couldn't go on on the 17th mm-hmm. Street market if it was a desire to have it there. I think maybe what the problem is is that, you know, and I worked for the city for a little while. And, I, you know, Ronnie Sofi, you remember him? Yeah, no, got- well. He got me the job, you know, and he worked in wrecking parks and like had to deal with all those bureaucrats all the time. And he said, most of those people, if they don't know the answer to something, they just say no because they don't want any trouble. Yeah. And like they want to keep their job and they got their own agenda. But the other thing is like this, the, the, the setup that's already there of like how money comes in, which is basically on fining the hell out of everybody and people having to buy licenses and all of that. <laughs> yes. they, they can't stop that one thing that's bringing in the money to create the other thing that's going to bring in the money. Mm. You know, like, cause right now the reason the farmer's market sucks is cause you got to pay so much money to get a, um, you know, get a vendor's license down there. Right. And, and there are people that have had them for a long time that are just, we're going over to Loving's Produce and buying some bullshit and selling it over there. There wasn't any farm right. involved, right. you know. And it's it's that crap. It's like, it's the old, like, let's just, t- let's just you know, get kickbacks off of everything instead of like, let's just stop doing that and let, you know, just instead wait for the tax yeah. money to come in instead of like, you know. Yeah, it's a great area down there, and that's mm-hmm. a real shame that it's not doing more than what it's doing. But uh, nonetheless, that's the way it is. I think it's – I mean, I was watching City Council the other night, and it does seem like the dynamic is changing on there. I was surprised to see John Belisles on, sitting on City Council, mm-hmm. who's the dude I knew through other guys. Oh, like, sure. You know, uh, and he's involved in that street art festival, and there's that Parker and uh, another guy who's like kind of a peer. I don't, I don't remember how I know him, but – uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a bunch of them involved. A lot right? more sensible people seem to be sitting on yeah. it, and so maybe things can change. Yeah, John's also involved a lot with the folk festival. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I mean there are some people involved. I just I don't know why it it, it can't happen. I mean I, I I've never understood it. It's it's strange. It's definitely worth looking into for real. Like maybe Holmberg can do that sometime, or yeah, somebody like somebody do something. <laughs> Well, I guess eventually it'll change. I, I do feel like the future of Richmond is the riverfront. Yeah. And uh, it's slowly coming along, you know, slowly and slowly. But, mm-hmm. you know, had we years ago taken the resources and money and time and effort that, say, was a Sixth Street marketplace right. and headed and towards the river station. and yeah. Main Street Station, that would have been done towards the riverfront, I think, you know, 
we could be a San Antonio or a Baltimore Harbor mm-hmm. place or a Norfolk or, you know, all these people that have these water facilities mm-hmm. have just done great and boom. Yeah, Bell but, Island and yeah, all that oh, stuff. Yeah, with all that down there, there's no reason developing that waterfront. And I don't mean just going down and building big condos and stuff, but, I mean, right. if it's if it's done in, in, in congruous nature to the – area and it's tastefully done and it, it's in harmony with what's happening there's no reason that couldn't be a great place along the river and yeah. i think the future of the city is along the waterfront mm-hmm. and I, i'd like to see it uh i i don't know you know i grew up with downtown being a thriving thing i talk about that a lot i would, oh, yeah. I would love to see Me it too. like that again do you think there ever will be like a you know department stores and things like that down there again? I, I doubt that and it, it probably won't be until people are living there and that's starting to happen more once a residential sector starts coming in then you're going to have the need for things like that laundries yeah. and different facilities and you know but you got to have the people living in the area or the people at least coming to it to right be able to do it but yeah I, I grew up like you did curtis and uh you know, it was a big deal on Saturday to go to Miller and Rhodes and mm-hmm. Tall Hammers and mm-hmm. have lunch on the balcony at Woolworths down yeah. there. And, you know, I remember as a, as a little kid, my mother dressing me up and taking me downtown, mm-hmm. you know, on on the weekends. And it was a big deal. You could walk along Gray Street at Christmas time and the windows got all oh, the Oh, yeah. Anima- we used to go make special trips just to see the windows. Yeah. Tall Hammers, Miller and Rhodes, all that, you know, yeah. Well, I remember you said you got to get out of here. It's about 10 minutes to 3, man. And yeah, I, it's about you, that you know, time. Man. I really appreciate you coming over, and it was really fun. Uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. Always is, always has been. And and by the way, I wanted to remember to do this before I left. That was incredibly cool when you loaned Staples and me your, uh, what was that, a 56 Buick? A oh, 55. 55 Buick. Buick. Uh-huh. We were like, I was 16, he was 15. <laughs> And you let us use it to go to our Christmas dance, and I had a classic, you know, uh, Chris, you know, dance experience in that thing, you know, and I had a listening to like fifties rock and roll, you know, fantastic time for that thing. I really appreciate Fan- that. Oh, well, you know, it was a great time. Not a not a problem. It's been great growing up with you. Yeah, I'm still yeah. growing up with you. Exactly. <laughs> All right. See you soon. Bye. Yeah, it was a lovely chat, Mister Chuck Wren. Uh, I originally recorded that right before what would have been the 37th High on the Hog and also the Richmond Folk Festival, but I didn't have time to put it up until just now, Wednesday, a few days later. That doesn't really matter. You understand how these things work, don't you? You're not too displaced by that. You're not too confused. They're all very smart people. I'd I'd love to have posted it right before I had to go. Anyway, hey, you guys, um, yeah, I'm, I'm working for a living in addition to doing this podcast, so there's less time to post podcasts, but I could still use your a show of support from you. Show me the money. Throw down some snaps on it. Any little bit helps? Anything, $10, $20, $30, $100, hook me up. By the way, um, my good friend Sarah, who's been a supporter of this show for, uh, from the beginning, financial and emotional, has given me a lot of good advice. Um, she has a, this really cool design um, jewelry-making business, basically. Um, 
I, I initially noticed one of these bracelets that she makes on her when we were meeting for coffee one time, and it, it's really they really jump out at you. They're these uh, big plastic capsules, uh, you know, made into a bracelet. There's usually like six of them or something, and on one side is an image, and on the other side is text. And they usually have a theme. Uh, she comes up with her own themes: literary, um, musical, artistic, whatever, and you can also customize a theme and I actually had her make one for me a while ago based on uh, the Tom Robbins book Still Life with Woodpecker and she had all these great images around the outside of it and then text on the inside pertaining on how one how do you make love stay and uh, so that's Pie Hole Designs uh, where you could find that P.I. is in you know the mathematical thing Pie Hole Designs Google it um, and also, there's a link to my friends and supporters on my page to friends and supporters that you can find her there. <clears throat> Assuming I've fixed that link. I hope I have. But uh, peace out. <laughs>